Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Today is Ascension Sunday on the church calendar, 40 days after Easter. Has it been that long since Easter already? The 40th day actually fell on May 26, this past Thursday, but in the mainline Protestant tradition, the celebration of the Ascension is moved to the immediate following Sunday, today, and we remember, commemorate, and reflect on the day that Jesus gathered His disciples around Him on the Mount of Olives near Bethany, gave them their final instructions, and then disappeared from their sight, ascending to heaven where he would sit at the right hand of God. Brian Zahn says, this is not Jesus blasting into outer space, but this is Jesus being inaugurated and taking his rightful place in the highest office of the universe. And we read about these events from Luke 24, verses 45 and following. Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that his, this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And this is that message. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things, and now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them. And was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him. And then returned to Jerusalem. Filled with great joy. The word of God for the people of God. Now there are a number of ways that you can celebrate Ascension Sunday. Let me share a couple with you that you might find interesting. The oldest tradition on Ascension Sunday is to eat a bird. A chicken. A turkey, a duck, a quail, a Cornish hen, I'm sure any of those will do. It is a feast day, and those poor Christians from antiquity were always needing a good excuse to put some meat on the table, a rare and wonderful treat. And since Jesus flew away into the sky like a bird set free, this became an early tradition in the church. Maybe it's why Southern Baptists eat so much fried chicken on Sundays. I don't know. A second tradition, almost as old as the first, climb a mountain. 
It'll be a little hard here. But get as high in the sky as you can get, up in the clouds where Jesus ascended. And a third tradition, about a thousand years old and uniquely Italian. Any of Italian descent? Oh. I tried to get Jody to do this today in children's church, but she was afraid of the chaos. In Tuscany and in Venice, there is a tradition on the day of ascension of catching crickets. And one really doesn't know where this one came from, probably a fusion of some local or pagan custom. But regardless, the crickets are captured and they're put in a small cage so that they can sing their praises to the glorified Christ. And after they are finished singing, they are set free, just as Jesus was set free from the earth. So it may be too late this year, but please mark your calendar for the 40th day after Easter next year. And if you will climb a mountain with a picnic of fried chicken and catch a few crickets while you're up there, read this text and sing, Lord, I lift your name on high, I think that's about as celebratory as you can get for Ascension Sunday. But what is this really all about, outside of Jesus' great disappearing act? He's here, and then he's gone. What does it mean that Jesus ascended, that Jesus has taken his rightful place in the highest office of the universe? And if this is true, what are the implications for those of us who call Jesus Lord, who have made the baptismal promise to follow him? Well, first... Let's deal with this question of what is the meaning of the ascension. In short, it is God's acceptance of everything that Jesus did and accomplished. It is God's validation, God's vindication. It is God's proof that Jesus is, in fact, the beloved Son in whom God is well pleased. And while the resurrection was affirmation enough, You might say it was not enough from God's perspective. The ascension is God essentially saying, because you ran the course, and because you gave sacrificially and unselfishly, I am not simply going to welcome you home. I am going to give you a place, a title, a change of status, and a change in elevation. Paul sums it up best in the book of Philippians where he says, because of all that Jesus endured and accomplished, and because he humbled himself and descended from as high a perch as anyone could be on to the lowest place that anyone could go, therefore, Paul says, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue would confess That Jesus Christ is Lord. Back to those cricket-loving Venetians. They have an Ascension Day ritual that illustrates this. And it's called the Marriage of the Sea. And it was celebrated post-COVID for the first time this past week. And they have celebrated it for more than a thousand years. It seems, as the story goes... That about a thousand years ago, the city of Venice was under great threat from some barbarians across the Aegean Sea, the Adriatic Sea. And a young man in the city of Venice said, this will not stand. We cannot wait for the enemy to arrive. 
And he marshaled a small army. They loaded boats, crossed the sea, landed on the coast of what is now Croatia, and defeated the enemy there. And then came home. And when he came home, he was given the title, the Doge of Venice, the Duke of Venice, the elevated one. So he left as a soldier, he left as a farm kid, he came back with the highest title possible that the people could give. And today when they celebrate the marriage of the sea, it's no longer the Duke or the Doge, but the mayor of Venice will go down to the seashore with a golden ring and they cast it into the sea as a sign of thanksgiving to that battle years ago that saved the city. And they do it intentionally on Ascension Day, for they are recognizing that Christ has accomplished the same. That He entered, as it were, foreign territory and defeated the enemies of death, hell, the devil, and the grave on their terms and on their grounds. And now has returned back to the Father, not just as the Son, but as the elevated one who has the title above all titles. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful picture that cricket-loving Venetians have given us. That's the meaning of the ascension. That's what it means that Jesus has been rewarded the highest office in the land. The ascension is His reward. Well, what then are the implications for those of us who follow Jesus? And I'll maybe answer that with a question. If Jesus is indeed head of the universe, if He is indeed, as the book of Colossians say, supreme over all things, the one who holds all things together, if He is the reason for and the foundation of our faith, doesn't that make Him the authority on our faith and practice? Doesn't that make Him the boss of our lives. The, the word used in the New Testament is Lord. Doesn't that give Him the first and the last word about our beliefs and our actions? Now all of us, I think, would say, yes, of course. And it is easy, I think, to sing along loudly and boldly, I have decided to follow Jesus. But I think we get a little sketchy sometimes as we put that into practical application. Because that decision to follow Jesus sometimes buckles under the pressure of other allegiances, other beliefs, other priorities. It is easy, so easy, as elevated as Jesus is, to shove Him off of His pedestal. And to replace Him with someone or something else. Someone or something else infinitely inferior. Like what? Well, nationalism is a leading contender these days. A lot of people throw Jesus' name around and we speak of God and country as the mantra. But when you look around at that, there's not a whole lot of Christ-likeness attached to it. It is about power. It is about cultural dominance. Is it about holding a false ideal? It's about an idol because the American way becomes more important sometimes than the Jesus way. And that is a constant temptation. 
we can put our rights ahead of Jesus as well. Well, you know, it is my right. I am entitled. You aren't the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. And before we know it, we are dug in ideologically and forget that Jesus himself gave up all of his rights. Gave up all of his prerogatives. All of his entitlements. And the instruction to us when Paul tells us that story is, quote, so have the same attitude as Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and gave up his rights. That is the prelude, by the way, to all of that high and mighty stuff about being raised to the name that is above all names. The only reason that happened is because Jesus was willing to give up everything in this loving mission of service. And so many times when we talk about our rights and about liberties and freedoms, especially in these most recent days, sometimes it is just a front for our selfishness and our arrogance with no consideration for what our rights do to someone else. Our religion can take the place of Jesus. Bizarrely, but true. Because religion and Jesus are not always the same thing. Even if that religion has a cross hanging above it's building. Sometimes religion and Jesus are diametrically opposed one to the other. A religion that subjugates women, a religion that disempowers and shames people for their past mistakes, a religion that is wed to power and abuse or financial gain, a religion that propagates dishonesty, that takes the side of violence. A religion that props up an unjust system or a broken status quo. These do not reflect the way of Jesus or the mind of Christ. Jesus empowered and equalized the marginal and the least of these. Jesus dealt in the currency of forgiveness and restoration. In the text this morning, what was the message that would be going out to all the world in the name and the authority of Christ, it would be that sins are forgiven. That grace will abound. Jesus threw off all the typical tools and means of this world. He was a speaker of the truth, a speaker of peace and revolutionary love that brought real and sustaining change. And sometimes, sometimes... We even put the Bible ahead of Jesus. And I don't know any other way to say it than that. I can't improve upon this graphic from Michael Frost. Genocide is biblical. Loving your enemy is biblical. But only one is Christ-like. Slavery is biblical. Chain-breaking is biblical, but only one is Christ-like. Patriarchy is biblical. Counter-cultural elevation of women is biblical, but only one is Christ-like. Retributive violence is biblical. Grace-filled restoration is 
biblical, but only one is Christ-like. Segregation is biblical. Unity is biblical, but only one is Christ-like. Christ transforms, not the Bible. Be wary of those who know one, but not the other. That is heavy hitting right there. And here is a letter, and it's tongue-in-cheek. Oh, but God, I love this. It was written by Kent Ashcraft more than 20 years ago. He was listening to a popular radio personality quoting the Bible about homosexuality. And the language was filled with a lot of rage. And Kent wrote this letter to the radio personality seeking clarity on the subject. Will you listen for just a moment? Kent writes, Thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from you and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how to best follow them. Number one, when I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice at my home. I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, according to Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? Two, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. And in this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Number three, I know that I am allowed no contact with a woman while she is menstruating. Le- Le- Leviticus fifteen nineteen through 24. The problem is, how do I tell? I keep asking, but most women take a lot of offense. Number four, Leviticus twenty five forty four states that I may indeed possess slaves both male and female, provided they are purchased from a neighboring nation. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Why can't I own a Canadian? Number five, I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. And Exodus 35.2 clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself or should I have the police come do it? Number six, a friend of mine pointed out that eating shellfish is an abomination before God. Leviticus 11.10. I was planning on having a shrimp bowl next weekend, but I don't want to risk going to hell. Could you please settle this for me? Number seven. Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight and I have to admit that I am now wearing reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room on this when I pray? Number eight, most of my male friends get haircuts, including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27. How should I have them killed? Number nine, I know from Leviticus 11, 6 through 8, that touching the skin, it's my favorite, of a dead pig makes me unclean. Can I still play football with my kids if I wear gloves? Number 10, and finally, 
My uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field. As does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread because she prefers a cotton polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the entire town together to stone him? Or couldn't we just burn him to death as a private family affair like they do with people who sleep with their in-laws in Leviticus chapter 20? Now, I know you have studied these things extensively, so I am confident that you can help. And I thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. I'm not disrespecting the Bible. Far from it. I'm not taking a low view of Scripture. I am challenging you to see the Bible for what it is. Not the end, but the means. Not the point of our faith, but pointing us to the person of our faith. Not the foundation of Christianity. For even the Bible itself says there is only one foundation, and that is the risen and reigning Christ. It took me an hour and a half to get to Sandestin yesterday with the traffic. Do you know why all those people come here? They come to the beach. They don't come to look at the sign that points to the beach. Are you listening? How foolish would it be and how much longer would it take to get anywhere if every tourist stopped at the sign that said beach And they all pile out of their cars, and they start popping up their umbrellas and breaking loose the coolers and putting on the SPF 50 or whatever, and they say, we've made it. No, you haven't. You've only gathered around the sign that points to something infinitely better than what you're experiencing along the road, right? The experience is your feet in the sand. The experience... Is those waters of the Gulf, the experiences, the sunrises and the sunsets that are so blistering red in these recent days. And if you stop at the sign, you'll never experience it. And I fear that so many of us, in our love for so many different things, we stop and worship at the sign when we are being pointed to something far greater. For there is only one foundation that can be laid. And that is the foundation laid in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There will always be a long and worthy list of contenders striving to take the place of ultimate supremacy in our lives. Be it our rights, our religions, our rules of some sort. But let our hearts be given only to the risen Christ, ascended even now to the Father's right hand. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.